This talk was given to a group of people sitting in silence during a meditation retreat. It is intended for a mind that is quiet and attentive. We invite you to enter into your own mini-retreat by sitting quietly and listening wholeheartedly. The teachings you're about to receive were freely offered. If you would like to make a donation to support their continuation, please visit us at dharmaseed.org. I'd like to talk about the Eightfold Path. After Diana's talk last night, it occurred to me that it would be good to talk about how we're practicing the various aspects of this path. And uh, we can't discuss all the aspects, of course, but we can focus on those parts of it that are especially relevant to how we've been spending our time over the last couple days. And also look at how the practices we're doing relate to the difficulties that arise as we try to do it. So one thing I liked about Diana's talk is how joyously she talked about suffering, <laughs> you know, laughing the whole way. She's always been able to do that. Um, and you'll recall the theme was the reality of suffering. And the causal structure by virtue of which suffering takes place. The incredibly optimistic and beautiful claim that peace is possible, that there's a way for human beings to deal with suffering. And the fourth noble truth is the Eightfold Path, how to cultivate the mind and heart so as to uh, deal intelligently with suffering. And this Eightfold Path is not like a linear sort of, you know, you do the first path and then you go on to the second. it's more like an eight-lane highway. That's not quite right. <laughs> it's 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 they're all all the different eight aspects are are intertwined and interrelated. It's a path. So, uh, and the first aspect is simply the understanding, the wisdom, to recognize the reality of suffering and to see that it has causes and to deal intelligently with those causes so as to live without suffering. And when we live our lives, it's quite often the case that our own suffering is sort of intermingled with the suffering of others. So that part of our own suffering is living in a world where others are suffering and our recognition of that. 
coming out of that recognition, it is quite natural to want to do something about the suffering. Not only one's own suffering, but the suffering of others. And this kind of opens right into the second aspect of the Eightfold Path, which is that frame of mind that is aiming or resolving to live in a way that is letting go of suffering in one's own mind and heart and is also not causing suffering for others and is actually living a life that is helpful to others. And so hearing the various motivations from you guys about why you're here, also reading on the questionnaires, the one question about what is motivating you. You know, this sort of expression of wanting to be more aware, wanting to be more compassionate, wanting to find a vocation that is meaningful to me and, and, and others. Uh, this is an expression of the second aspect. And I find it inspiring to hear it and to meet other people. For me, um, this sort of recognition of suffering in myself and in others was a big motivator to look into meditation. And um, recognizing that the ways in which I was angry about political issues was not particularly useful or promising. My own mind was not at peace. And so insofar as I was angry about political issues because um, I wanted there to be a better way of living, the actual state of my mind was not very promising. And it was, for me, a motivator to look into meditation. And I know that some of you share that. When this resolve or aim or motivation is not merely sentimental, then it will affect how we live. And this opens up into the uh, third, fourth, and fifth aspects of the Eightfold Path, which have to do with action. So they're action, speech, livelihood. Um, there's a story told, um, well, it's the Buddha's instructions to his son Rahula about morality in one of the sutras. And basically what being serious about the reality that our actions have consequences, it's actually a simple thing. We bring awareness to our intentions and plans. And we ask, is this likely to harm somebody or myself? Or is it likely to be useful, beneficial? 
And in this guidance for his son, the Buddha is saying, if it looks like it's not going to be harmful, then go ahead, form those intentions and act on them. But even while you're acting, you can actually keep this question in mind. Is it working out the way I anticipated? And even in the course of doing something, if you can see that, no, this is likely to harm somebody, or this isn't really going to be that promising for me, then change course. And likewise, after we've done something, we can pay attention to the consequences. Did it work out how I thought it would? So again, we can bring intelligence into uh, our actions. And this is the kind of the root of, of morality, having the intention not to harm and then paying attention to the plans that we make, the actions that we do, paying attention to the consequences. Um, and it's really not a structure where there are certain like uh, top-down conceptual commands or rules. Um, it's much, much more paying attention to how our lives are really working and, in a, and taking an interest in it. And not in a judgmental or, or frightened way, just in a kind of a curious way. And here's where our friends can be really helpful. Uh, for example, a few years ago, I uh, decided that it would be a good idea to buy some stocks. And uh, I got something in the mail, you know, or something. <laughs> believed it, you know. <laughs> and it was actually looked pretty good, you know. So, and I kind of have to take responsibility for myself. No one else is going to. And it's like, yeah, maybe I could get rich quick, you know. So this is not not very uncommon these days. And uh, so I bought some stocks and they went up, you know. And it was pretty exciting, and every day I would check, and they'd go up a little, and it was great. And then I'd lose interest for a while, and they'd go down, and I'd check, and then sell, and lose money. And then I'd get something else in the mail, and like, oh, that looks pretty good, you know. And so there was a pattern, and I, you know, I it was kind of taking time and energy, like I could, like wow, this is kind of exciting. You know, you can do it online. And <laughs> it's really powerful. You just click and make money. <laughs> and so after a couple of years, few years, I was talking to Diana and just telling her about this. And she's, she looked at me and she said, so how's it working out? It's just like an obvious question. <laughs> and I was like, you know, it's not working. <laughs> you know, I lose money, I waste time and energy. I don't really have enough of an interest to make it work. You know, I, you know, I just am a sucker. <laughs> and uh, she goes, so what are you going to do about it? 
And it was great. It was very helpful just to help me like see this pattern that wasn't making sense and uh, uh, change it, actually. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so that's a kind of a, it's not actually trivial. It's, it's a serious, it's a good example for me uh, of, of this sort of thing, just simply bringing attention to the things we're doing or wanting to do, uh, looking at the consequences and asking in the, you know, just using our normal intelligence, is this really making sense to be doing this? Uh, given that time is short, energy is limited, and so forth. I'm kind of in a similar, not similar, but I'm in another quandary right now. It's a different sort of thing. I have uh, three nieces to whom in the last few months I've given gifts. And uh, they're teenagers. One's in Portland and one's in San Francisco and one's in Seattle. And none of them sent me a thank you note. And these were nice gifts, you know. (laughs) And uh, the first one, the one in Seattle, she got married. And so I went online to Macy's and bought her this $200 comforter, you know. And it's very unlike her not to write a thank you note. I mean, in the back of my mind, it's... So I'm kind of... Anyway, <laughs> I need your advice. <laughs> um, the second one, uh, I just kind of, I, don't, I knew she had, this was a small gift, but she won an award in her junior high school for writing, so I just thought of a book that I like about writing, and I sent it to her. Uh, the third one graduated from high school. I sent it some money. Um, and I can kind of feel, the reason I'm mentioning this in this context is I can kind of feel a choice. I can kind of get bitter. Or, I mean, this, this is silly, and well, let's move on, but... <laughs> Um, it's almost like, if I keep, it, put it this way, if I let the current pattern play, it's, play out without being on my toes, then I'm going to get, I'm going to be pissed off at my nieces. You know, because there's, because like they're taking me for granted or something. And, you know, I don't really know, I don't even know if the comforter arrived, you know. It, Macy's might have messed up. You know, um, so I'm not sure this was the greatest example, but <laughs> you know, it's like it, it came to mind as an example of okay, this is something in my life that I can pay attention to, and not just allow kind of the forces that are at work in this relatively small thing play themselves out and turn into a big problem or just into like an unnecessary sort of disconnection. That would be my advice.
so you can see that you know wisdom is limited <laughs> so if we bring our attention to what we're doing or not doing to our intentions our plans and, and so forth <laughs> we obviously have to be aware and it's easy to forget to be aware when we act you know life happens fast and so we easily do things carelessly and so forth and so the idea here is just to kind of recognize that yeah I do have in me the wish to live in a way that is is really not creating suffering that is contributing to happiness and what I do can make a difference and so just bring care into the actions that we do and this has in my understanding is the source of, of morality in the Buddhist way of thinking and to actually do it then requires mindfulness and this is the next aspect of the Eightfold Path and of course it's something that we've been practicing quite intensively over the past couple of days with a special focus on cultivating mindfulness of the body so not everything we've done has been in that territory but a lot of the different practices that we've done have been connected with the body beginning the first night with the deep sighs Just can, if, you know, by the way if that had been the only instruction we had it would have been a great one for the whole week just practice relaxing with the breath. Right. So that was a first step. We've also done quite a lot of other things. We've done the qigong practices. We've done the attention to the normal breath. We've done the walking meditation. We've done the eating meditation. Each of these is a different sort of connection to mindfulness of the body. We also did a few minutes of pain awareness meditation this morning. And after that session, there was one comment about uh, the difference between the idea and the expectation of pain and the actual moment-to-moment -moment experience as it was taking place in the body. Uh, it's a really important distinction. It came to mind last year when uh, my mother uh, had shingles. It's a painful condition and I was talking with her on the phone and she was talking about the pain and it had been there for a week and it wouldn't go away. And I didn't say anything to her about it, but it occurred to me that she was assuming that the pain was this thing. And in the, during that, that period, with that pain at least, she wasn't so much looking into the actual experience. It was just a thing that was oppressing her and it was difficult for her. And when we 
cultivate mindfulness of the body in the ways that we've been doing. We want to do it in a way that is not superficial in the sense that we're, we don't want to just be staying at the ideas of the body. So there's a simple exercise that I, I learned from Philip Moffat that might help make this more clear. In a way, it doesn't need to be made more clear because I think you know what I'm talking about. But if you wish, uh, just raise your right hand and look at it. Look at the palm. And what do you see? You see probably lines, wrinkles, colors. You see the fingers have length and so forth. You might turn it over, look at the back of the hand. probably see some veins or bones, skin. This is your right hand. Okay, so put it down. So that's a form of awareness of our hands. And now, if you wish, just close your eyes and raise up your right hand slowly. Just observe what you feel in your hand. You might move it, wave it, flop it, just experience your hand, move your fingers. Bring it back down. So the idea in that simple exercise is, yeah, there's a sort of mindfulness of the hand in the first exercise where we're seeing it and so forth. There's a much more from the inside sort of connection with our hands when we're just observing the sensations that are there. And um, when, we talk, when we talk about being mindful, mindfully aware of the breath, we really want to be doing it from the inside, just these simple sensations that are coming and going. Uh, it's not a conceptualization of any sort, actually. And that is how we stay in the present moment. That phrase, staying present or being in the present moment, is, I think, almost cliche now in our culture. It's so common and familiar. But the core of the idea is not actually trying to stay in the present moment in some way. It's uh, when we're working with the body, like using the breath or in the walking meditation. The, the core of it is staying connected with what we can be aware of in that moment, moment after moment. And so um, there's no need, if, if you have actually been sort of taken by that phrase, staying in the moment, there's, there could be the possibility of trying too hard in a certain way. We don't really need to try to stay in the present moment. We just need to try to stay connected with real experience as it's happening. Mindfulness of the body is, at its core, not forgetting to stay connected. So the greater our mindfulness, 
the less we'll forget to stay connected. We don't create the sensations. We're not really creating the awareness. Where we can forget most often is this idea of getting lost in thought or the mind wandering. And I'm sure you know what I'm talking about from your own experience. staying connected with the actual sensations in the breath as they're taking place is relatively boring compared to the thoughts that may arise about the future or about the past or the speculation that may begin occurring about myself. Uh, Often these thoughts are fueled by desire. So we have the desire for pizza obsessing some people from time to time, or the desire for romance, or the desire, you name it, right? That's like how we are, you know, just we have desires and it's actually kind of great. And yet when we try to cultivate this quality of connection with actual experience in the body as it's happening. Our minds can definitely spin out into fantasies grounded in desires. We can also find ourselves with a lot of memories of things that have happened in the past, often with emotional states coming along remorse, regret, sorrow, sadness, and so forth. Anger, irritation, frustration. Um, We also can find ourselves just caught in a sort of cycle of, of confusion or doubt, lack of confidence. And in this context where we are trying to cultivate mindfulness. These are problems. The ways in which we do, our minds wander, we get lost in thought, fueled by desire or uh, aversion, anger, and so forth. So we'll talk about that a little bit more later tonight, but um, just to kind of get that on the map, that what is happening relative to the practice we're trying to do is we're losing connection with what's happening in the moment in our bodies when we're using the body as a primary focus. Uh, I think Deborah mentioned the other day, even while there is a river of thoughts going on, we can still stay connected and that's for sure. Right? So, The first thing to realize about these sort of patterns of thought that arise and and get triggered and trigger more and and so forth is that we don't, we're certainly not trying to fix something here. We don't need to fix it. We're not going to fight with these thoughts or with these desires that fuel the thoughts or the aversion and anger that might be there or whatever. 
you can still stay connected to the body even while uh, our minds are kind of in a struggle because of the thoughts that are are firing sometimes rather quickly. And then we can actually use thoughts to help us stay connected. And uh, so we mentioned a couple times labeling. So like labeling the beginning of the in-breath as in or arising, the beginning of the out-breath as out or falling. It's kind of a way to harness the energy of thought. Sometimes it's useful uh, to help us remember to stay connected, which is the heart of, of what mindfulness is. And it's actually very simple. It's remembering to stay connected with our experience. And in those moments where we recognize that we haven't been connected, that we've been kind of in a fantasy or, uh, or some sort of <coughs> lost in a memory and so forth. In that moment when we recognize that we have been lost or fantasizing and so forth, we definitely don't need to fix anything in that moment because in that moment we're aware of what's, what's real. And we certainly don't need to, to uh, you know, let that moment trigger more thoughts, especially the negative thoughts about how bad I am for having done this. <laughs> right. And so one way to think about how our practice is when we're working with mindfulness of the body in the various ways that we do it, is we try to stay connected as much as we can with actual experience. We're not creating the sensations or the awareness. We're just staying connected. When we notice that we've kind of lost touch, fine, we're aware in that moment, and then we can reconnect. We don't have to stop the flow of thoughts. We can stay connected even while they're flowing. And, and when I talk like this, it can make it seem complicated, but it isn't. It's actually a very simple thing. And um, uh, like the exercise with the hand might be useful to reflect on. In fact, just lifting the hand and letting the hand fall can be a fine, it is a fine meditation practice in itself. It's kind of analogous to walking meditation where we're sort of, you know, giving ourselves a more active event to connect with. Uh, and you can might try that sometime. It, and then it's pretty easy to be aware, right? Being that it is simple, um, one might think that it's easy, but it doesn't work that way. Uh, It's simple, but it's not easy to do. And so this gets us to the seventh 
part of the uh, Eightfold Path, which is effort. The simplicity of what we're doing is actually really challenging for most of us. Just accepting how simple it is, how simple the instructions are, is um, challenging. We are inclined to, you know, want more of a story, more of a plot. We want to use our intelligence to figure, figure it out. And in this game, it really uh, is a different way to use our intelligence. When it comes to effort, where we use our intelligence is in recognizing that, first of all, the effort that we make is, is not blind effort. Right? It's subtle. Um, the energy, as you, I'm sure you've noticed, can, can go up and go down throughout the day. Uh, if your energy is up and you come and sit, then you might be restless. Very likely you will be restless. You want to do something more than just sit. Very common. If your energy is down, then you're going to be likely to experience drowsiness, heaviness. Uh, Sometimes um, this drowsiness is related to needing rest, but often it's not quite that. And uh, to practice in general in a balanced way, when we do notice, as we will sometimes, that the energy is low and that we have a lot of heaviness of body and mind, we're drowsy, sleepy, and so forth. We're not trying to figure it out or get some algorithm here, but in general, one thing to keep in mind is when the energy is low, which I'm sure we've all experienced it at some point this week, we can sort of tighten the situation a little bit, connect more precisely with the beginning of the in-breath, This is counterintuitive, right? If we're drowsy, heavy, and so forth, it might seem like it would make more sense to lie down and go to sleep. And that, you know, there can be a strong inclination that way. (laughs) Or to just kind of slack off a little bit, just kind of go into a more relaxed posture. In terms of this sort of practice, it's actually good in those moments if you can muster the energy to actually try to connect a little more precisely and cleanly with the breath, if you're using the breath, or with the beginning of the step, if you're doing walking meditation. We can also tighten the situation a little by using the noting, the labeling I talked about a minute ago, whether in sitting, observing the breath, just noticing in the quiet 5% of our experience label at the beginning of the in-breath, out or falling, 
just a quiet whisper in their mind that, that helps activate a little bit, helps make the connection. Likewise, in walking, the labeling can be useful, the way Temple presented it. Lifting, placing, lifting, placing. Just so we can, use, we can use thoughts to tighten a little bit, which is useful when the mind is heavy. Help us cut through that fog that's, that's difficult to bear. On the other hand, when the energy is really high, we're likely to be restless. And in general, it's a good advice to think in terms of loosening the situation a little bit. Uh, something like what Teja talks about in the Qigong, the underdoing, the movement. Right. And again, this may seem counterintuitive because we're talking about those times when you have a lot of energy and you're restless and the inclination can be to do more, to do more. And in those moments, it's good to loosen a little. Not that doesn't mean not try. We're still connecting. We're still practicing mindfulness. But we're letting it happen in a more relaxed way. So this is a fascinating topic to me. Uh, just kind of the ways in which we can balance our energy and the clarity of mind that we have. Um, the Buddha gave some analogies for practicing in a balanced way, like tuning a guitar. You want, if the string is too loose, you want to tighten it. If it's too tight, you want to loosen it. Um, I like an analogy of holding a raw egg. Right. You want to hold it just right. If you hold it too loose, it'll fall on the floor. Curse flat. If you hold it too tight, similar result. Right. Uh, so we want to just hold it. Um, or another analogy I like is driving a car where um, someone who's just learning to drive will kind of have the idea that they're driving a car so they need to steer. You might have had this experience when you learned to drive, right? And so if you're following a new driver, you know, they can be like weaving all over the road because they're, they're steering, they're driving, <laughs> right? And um, you think they need should probably a DUI. Okay, but they're just learning to drive, right? And they're putting more effort in than they need, right? Obviously, some effort is necessary. You need to keep your hands on the wheel. But once you get experienced with it, it's quite a simple thing to, to make the right amount of effort. So when we practice with effort, the right amount of effort, we learn that basically by experience. The mind will become more calm, stable, clear. The mind becomes more concentrated. And concentration is the eighth part of the Eightfold Path. Um, and with this quality of, of clear, stable awareness, as Diana mentioned last night, the mind naturally tends to let go. We have the capacity for concentration. 
It's not a foreign esoteric skill that we need to think of ourselves as here to kind of invent and muster. Right. As students, artists, athletes, dancers, as and just paying attention to a friend. You know, we're we're directing our attention, we're connecting with something. Um, it's easy to focus our attention, especially around something surprising or unusual. For instance, uh, when I do this, it gets your attention, as we say. Like, why did he do that? What's going on? Uh, right. It's easy to focus our attention if we have normal capacities. We easily connect with what draws our attention. And what we're doing when we cultivate deeper concentration is just deepening this capacity that we naturally have. And we're doing it without so much of an object. And so if I'm practicing free throws, I'm using concentration, but I'm focusing in a, you know, to get a certain thing done. Whereas, or if I'm practicing a musical instrument, it takes lots of concentration and so forth. In meditation, we're cultivating concentration just for the qualities of mind that, that come with it. And uh, we're, the, the core of it, what makes it happen, is this activity that we've already been talking about a lot, simply connecting with what's real in experience. So when we're using the body, as a focus, the breath or the sensations in the feet and so forth, that mental activity of connecting conscious awareness with the event is one part of what makes concentration deeper. The other part that makes it happen is that activity of sustaining the attention with the flow of sensations in the breath or the flow of sensations in the feet and so forth. There are certain conditions that are important for deepening concentration and we're in a good situation here to do that. Uh, first of all, we're, we have enough food. We have pretty much enough food, I think. As far as I know, it's fine. (laughs) Everybody okay? (laughs) We have a place to rest. It's reasonably good. We actually have a beautiful place here to practice. There's no question about it. As a community, we're, we're actually creating an amazing situation for practice because of the respect with which people are bringing uh, to, the, to this room and to the, our interactions. You know, we've agreed on the precepts to make a safe space so that we can relax and not um, have to be 
preoccupied with safety. We have a schedule that, again, allows us, if we can just kind of yield, follow the schedule, then, you know, we don't really need to make a lot of plans. Um, We don't have to deliberate a lot. That's actually one of the big values of having a schedule for a context like this is that, and you might have noticed this if you were kind of deciding, should I do this or not? And it gets kind of painful and complicated. Whereas if you just kind of like, I don't think I can go to that sitting, but anyway, it's on the schedule. I'll just go and see what happens. It actually makes things a lot easier for most of the time. Uh, We also have seclusion here. And so that, you know, not checking email, you know, a lot of the things that if we were checking email, email would be triggering thoughts and complicated uh, plans and stuff. Uh, we're not doing that. Uh, Temple and I were teaching on a teen retreat a few weeks ago in Virginia, and we kind of discovered that we need to make an issue about cell phones, like not using cell phones, because one girl kind of checked her cell phone messages and and then got some disturbing news from a friend who they were having a fight or something. And so she just kind of got spun out of the retreat. And it would have been fine for all, I think, if she had waited uh, until the end. So this sort of renunciation that's involved in being here, just, you know, kind of, it's a big word for it, but accurate, is like, you know, we're not doing the things we normally do and like to do. And this is part of the conditions for allowing the mind to explore this space of concentration. Um, it actually conserves a lot of energy for, for this exploration, just because we've given ourselves this situation. Within the mind and body, what conditions the more calm, more clear, more stable states of mind, as I said a few minutes ago, are these activities of connecting and sustaining the attention with a neutral object, like the sensations in the breath. Those two activities create a sort of seclusion in the mind. It's a seclusion from the difficulties And in that space, we find naturally emerging a delighted interest in things, in our experience, a sense of comfort in the mind and body, and a kind of a one-pointedness. And these are the features of, of a concentrated mind. So the difficulties that I kind of mentioned in this talk, going back to the you know, distracted mind, the mind lost in thoughts, rooted in desires, or rooted in regret or memories, the lack of confidence, then the kind of the, the pair of drowsiness and restlessness. We can actually practice with these things in a way somewhat analogous to the way that we practice with pain this morning. So, yeah, we can let our attention go 
for instance, to that drowsiness, you know, that heaviness. It's, it's, it can be like a heavy blanket, and it's, it's, it's not fun, right? So we can kind of bring our attention to that in the same way we can bring our attention to the pain in the back or the pain in the knee. Uh, we can accept the reality of it, not pretend it's not there, and, and so forth. Likewise, with a memory that's disturbing or annoying us or leading to sadness, we can bring our attention to that. Um, and then come back to a more comfortable anchor, probably the breath or some other part of the, of the body. So we can kind of use that same quality of investigation and then coming back to the neutral, calm uh, place. We also can simply practice with these activities of connecting and sustaining. And this goes back to the idea of, okay, letting the river of thoughts or the fog of drowsiness or the explosion of restlessness or the whatever, of whatever. Just let it happen, right? And just stay connected with something simple like the, the, what's happening in the breath or in walking. You know, for walking, it's kind of interesting because it's, it can be a time where it's easy to ruminate and, and just let the mind wander. And so the effort there can be just kind of, okay, I want to explore what does happen if I practice it with a very simple connection over time. So I want to see what happens if I just stay with the sensations in my feet as I shift my weight and move. And so there can be a choice in there of, of not going with that rumination, reflection, whatever, and just keeping it simpler. And that's where, again, the effort for many of us can be accepting the simplicity of what we're working with here. wrap up. One thing I like from the Buddhist teachings is one sutra where it says that uh, joy is the gateway. And my own connection with what we're doing here is rooted in that, uh, in part. It's, It's like we want to find a way to enjoy this. And that can be as simple as just asking those questions, even about the activities we're doing here, that we can ask about our actions in the world. You know, is it making sense? Is it helping? We can be intelligent moment after moment. Um, there's a great story attributed to the Buddha about his own childhood. Uh, as you probably know, he you know, practiced some very uh, severe ascetic practices. Um, and uh, at one point, 
came to doubt that this was really making sense. And in one sutra, there's a, an account of, um, he says, I had a memory of sitting in an orchard when I was a boy and how happy I felt. And um, the sister says, uh, I asked myself, uh, could that be the way? And, uh, and he goes, and I realized, yeah, that was the way. And then, really interestingly, it says next, and then I felt fear. I don't know why that's there, but it's pretty interesting is there. And then that kind of opened the new doors for him to get away from uh, just the kind of the severe ascetic self-punishing sort of practices into this more balanced cultivation of mindfulness. When he, when the Buddha would talk about going into deeper levels of concentration. He often would use the analogy of going into more relaxed postures. So that a person is walking on the road and they see somebody standing. They go, oh, that looks nice. I think I'll stop and stand. And then they're standing for a while and they see someone sitting and they go, that looks good. I think I'll sit. They see, sit for a while and they see someone lying down and they Hmm, wonder if I could lie down. Yeah, I could lie down. So he uses this analogy for going into the more concentrated states of mind. And he also uses the very same sorts of analogies for the unraveling of the the forces in the mind that lead and perpetuate suffering. So the awakening of the heart is a process that also is, is described in terms of this analogy. And last night when Diana was describing, you know, that, that, scene, that awful scene being videotaped at dinner, you know, and the thought, of, as she described it, you know, it doesn't have to be this way. It's like we can be on the lookout for that sort of intelligence. It's like, hmm. And I mean, this is the way, and the Buddha describes these shifts in that way. A few years ago, I did a long retreat at my house by the Maumee River in Northwest Ohio. And a lot of that retreat was just practicing with a shift from struggling to not struggling. And even though I like a lot of the ideas that are associated with this practice, I don't, fortunately, I think for me, I don't try to label things that much in my own experience. And I'm always actually happy to find that like there's disagreement, you know, about what the different levels of concentration are or what this is or that is. And so for me, it was fine just to recognize that something palpable was happening, that there was a shift into a state that was more free of struggle. And uh, I wanted to mention that just in the same way Diana mentioned what she did last night, because, you know, we're really teaching from our own experience here. 
and we're relying on good sources. But uh, this sort of thing is, a, is, you know, in the midst of struggle and, and the difficulties that arise, um, you can kind of be on the lookout for a thread that uh, is really intelligent and that opens into less struggle, more concentration, more freedom of the heart. So thank you for your attention. Uh, let's sit for a minute. This talk was given by Marvin Beltre at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on August 8, 2007. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio Archive. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.